Hi, my name is Sam Sheen, and I'm joined as always by my friend and professional colleague, Mary Lindbergh, and this is our podcast, Captivated Audience. Over to you, Marie. Thank you, Sam. It is a pleasure to welcome Denise Rudish to Captivated Audience. Hi, Denise. How are you doing today? Hi, I am as well as can be. Thank you. <laughs> Besides from being the founder and director of your own advisory firm, Denise Rudish Consulting, can you tell us who you are, where are you based, and your other engagements? So I am Mexican-Canadian. I grew up in Texas, and I am a self-professed financial crime geek. And I am also CCO for Elementary B, and I am based in London. And when we first met, you were working with Rabobank on a long-term engagement, but then you transitioned over into working in compliance in the fintech space. Tell us a little bit of what that transition was like. Yeah, so I was I was really lucky to work with some incredibly supportive and lovely people at Rabo. Um, Rabobank was my first client when I set up on my own, and they were incredible in the sense that they gave me free reign. So I would spend four days a week in Rabobank, and then one day at Level 39 in Cannery Wharf. So for those of you who don't know what Level 39 is, I saw it as the heart of innovation in London, um, and that's where Innovate Finance was. And Robo, again, you know, Rabobank is your traditional financial institution. It's a systematically important bank. It has worldwide operations, you know, a massive client book, and they also have a massive corporate structure and uh, steering committees galore. So things move a little bit slowly. And then my one day a week that I went to the fintech, who was my client, it was a startup. It was dynamic, very agile. You're working with innovators, with people who, you know, their weekend hobbies were figuring out how to create robotics so that their plants could self water. And again, in terms of making decision, as long as the CEO is happy with whatever it is that you're proposing, it just gets done. So it kind of becomes a bit of an intoxicating thing when you're used to, you know, in terms of how problem solving is done when you're working in a financial institution and, and rightly so things are done by consensus, especially if you're working with risk management. And also because of the personal liability that comes with some of this, you also, you know, people like to share the risk. Whereas with a fintech, it's really just act now and see how we can change the world, you know, and the objectives are a little bit different as well. Fintechs, again, they want to make a profit, but they want to grow and they want to scale. And some of them want to change the world. Yeah, so it was an interesting transition. And there's something intoxicating about being able to work in a very fast moving environment when you're used to having to convince everybody and influence people at the local level, then the regional level, then the global level. And then maybe, <laughs> then maybe you can move forward with something. Denise, I have to ask your fascination for cryptocurrencies. You committed a good deal of effort into it in terms of AML. Can you please tell us how it started? I became fascinated with Bitcoin. I think it was in 2012. I went to my first event at Chatham House on Bitcoin and kind of the future of money. And I eventually, <laughs> I just kept on following it throughout the years. And in March 2018, the G20 finance ministers tasked the Financial Action Task Force to review the crypto asset, its crypto asset guidance, which had been published previously. And I just thought, ha, ah, well, the industry had to get involved in some way. So I volunteered with an industry body and I set up the first anti-money laundering counter-terrorist financing working group with somebody that you know as well, Sam, Malcolm Wright, and worked with some pretty phenomenal people, including, I'm going to, I'm going to shout out to Benedict Nolans because she is a force to be reckoned with to feed into the FATF consultation with the industry. So bringing people together from all over the world to see how we could maybe have a positive impact on getting FATF to understand some of the risks uh, and opportunities with the industry as well. 
attended, I went to the G20 summit in Osaka. So I attended the V20, which was really, the V20 was the virtual 20, which was convened to pull together the industry to come up with a solution to what is now the, the now infamous travel rule. Uh, and more recently, volunteered as a technical expert and observer with the Joint Working Group on Intervast Messaging Standards, which just rolls off the tongue. But this group was convened to create common data standards to allow whatever technology is developed to be able to facilitate the transfer of, of the required information to at least have the same common data standards. So it's technology agnostic. And last week, the IVMS 101 was published. And then on the side, I just work with a couple of crypto firms because, well, why not? They're kind of fun, right? So then you started to help another major non-governmental organization, right? An NGO. So I spend basically half my week with the Sentry. The Sentry is a non-for-profit organization that promotes the use of what they call tools of financial pressure to tackle war finance and the violent kleptocracies. So, you know, these are kind of cash-based societies where patronage systems are very embedded. The countries that they operate in, which is Sudan, South Sudan, Congo, um, Central African Republic, I think one of those countries has three ventilators for the country, which is just mind-boggling, right? Because the money has been taken by corrupt politicians so that they can live in beautiful houses and drive nice cars. And of course, some of the countries that you mentioned are also heavily under sanctions, which of course doesn't help. It's a fine balancing act because again, the, the objective of sanctions, if you adopt network sanctions where you sanction the politically exposed person, the corrupt actor and their financial enablers, that should target just a very specific pool of people and funds and allow for that money to be repatriated to the country, whereby when you have kind of blanket sanctions or a misunderstanding of the sanctions that are in place that lead to de-risking, then you have challenges around kind of the delivery of humanitarian relief and assistance to actually be able to help the people on the ground. So Denise, I know you took part in some pretty important initiatives in the UK in relation to the Sentry. Can you just describe that for folks? Yeah, so we were absolutely delighted to have an opportunity to work with um, some of our partners here in the UK in government. And we were really excited when the NCA, the Foreign Office, and DFID issued their first ever country alert on illicit finance in South Sudan which is actually the first time that the UK government has a, ever issued a country alert. The fact that it was between law enforcement and a government agency together. And also it was an alert that was aimed not just at the financial sector, but it was also aimed at private schools and providers of luxury goods, which are traditionally fall outside of the a designated business for anti-money laundering. Let's talk about women in technology. Let's talk about data. Let's talk about your new adventure you're apparently embarking on. I was sitting on a train with my sister when we could sit on trains together <laughs> um, and we were talking about banking and how we felt that banking is broken. So she's also uh, an ex-banker. She's worked in some of the top tier financial institutions, Lloyd's, Barclays, uh, UBS, you, you name it. And she's a strategic um, troubleshooter. By the same time, I was lamenting about how I thought financial crime prevention sometimes appears to be broken. You know, I mean, the industry spends 270 billion on compliance a year. You know, there's two trillion in losses. The, it doesn't even compute properly. Uh, so we joked about starting a bank. And then before I knew it, like a couple of months passed by and she was like, hey, you know what we're talking about? Well, I pulled together a team of people. I put together a business plan and I actually incorporated a company and I've got a brand. 
do you want to come and fix financial crime and co-found this with me? And I was just kind of like, oh, you're my sister. You're my older sister as well. But how fun could this be? Denise, that was a really interesting name. You said elementary B, banking business going back to basics. So basically what elementary B is going to be, or what we're envisioning for elementary B, we're going to be starting as a banking as a service or software as a service business and creating a financial services platform that's designed for the mid-market enterprise sector to provide exhaustive insights, real-time information, and support what we're calling data-driven decision-making and processing. And why we're going for the MME sector. So I like to think of them as the the forgotten middle child. You know, they make up 30% of UK revenue. They have turnover, I think last year it was 1.5 trillion, but they are completely underserved and overcharged. And I think the reason why I'm really excited to be working on this is the ability to be able to provide people with real-time insights so that they can actually grow their business and or even make their businesses more resilient. And I'm really excited for the opportunity to create a future-proof, uh, intelligence-led, preventative model and proactive model in financial crime prevention in collaboration with uh, my peers, hopefully the likes of you guys, uh, regulators, and also see if we can co-create it with our customers. This sounds more like a much better success story than the experience you and I both had when we were at the FCA Tech Sprint in 2018. And I'm sure you'll remember that. That was a really interesting experience because on this podcast, we've talked to lots of people about technology and we've been talking about whether or not this whole experience is going to accelerate adoption. But the problem, of course, was in real life as we saw at the Tech Sprint. Remember, you, had, you tried to do that presentation on homomorphic encryption which God bless you, because that must have been the bravest thing anybody tried to do in a room full of people who are carrying notebooks and pens. So, you know, what's it going to take to get to that next stage to have people kind of wrap their arms around technology as part of financial crime prevention? Oh, gosh, that presentation. <laughs> it took me two days to understand what it was. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Oh, okay. So I, I mean, I think the technology is like magic, right? The things that we can do, the fact that we can be putting together this podcast while in quarantine is a magical thing to happen, right? But there are a whole bunch of zeros and ones that are sitting behind this. And I think the ability to communicate what complex, you know, frameworks and data and whatever you, however you want to describe technology to a layperson, right? To somebody like me um, and, you know, with, with homomorphic encryption, it wasn't until somebody said to me, look, basically what you're doing is you're sharing information between two systems and it's, you know, mathematical puzzles that basically say, if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck, there is nothing else that it can be but a duck but you don't tell each other that it's a duck. And it was at that point that I was like, oh, oh, that's what you mean. Okay, I get this now. Think about distributed ledger technology. If you think about natural language processing, zero knowledge proof, I mean, it's incredibly complicated technology. So if you can make it a little bit more accessible and less scary, <laughs> then I think that's, that's the first step. I think definitely the second step, I think we all understand the potential, but also the fact that it is possible to adopt a technology. You know, COVID-19 has shown us with everybody working remotely from home that technology connects us all, but that it is scalable and it's actually, you don't need 50 steering committees in a large organization <laughs> to, this, to decide that you do need to adopt, you know, either Zoom or Teams or Microsoft Teams and that it's actually not as hard to embed as people think that it is. 
Denise, we have touched on so many buzzwords. We have touched on crypto. We touched about agile working, fintech. I'm just going to throw out another favorite word of mine, data. What do you see in the future? So last year I wrote an article on, um, it was actually financial crime and sustainability. And, and there's this one statistic that kind of was thrown out that I found, which is the fact that 44 septabytes of data were going to be created by 2020. Now, I don't know what that means in real terms and, and how to even to quantify it. But when I think of data and the word data, I think of the fact that we probably need data pools, that we need quality data. When I think of data in financial crime and I think of AI and machine learning, so much data that's needed to train the robots and to and make sure that it's done in a proper manner. So again, data when used correctly and analyzed correctly and when it can be turned into actionable intelligence is fantastic. The rest, unfortunately, can actually cause harm. So we have to be careful. One piece of information by itself can be completely meaningless. One piece of information badly misinterpreted can lead, worst case scenario, to death. One piece of information or data put together with other pieces of data can actually lead to a positive outcome and it can lead to, you know, a modern slavery ring being taken down. So Denise, you are one of my favorite person to follow on LinkedIn because whenever I look at, at my flow, you pop up. There is a picture of you with a very important person. Yeah, what's the deal <laughs> with you and Mr. Macron? Le Président. Um, I've had the opportunity and the privilege of being involved with the G7 and the G20 research groups since I was in university. And I am now the director here in London. And, and basically, it's influenced my career. So anti-money laundering is known as kind of like the longest lasting initiative for the G7, or at least that's how I consider it. And, it, and it's kind of paved my way in terms of my career. Right now, they're going to be holding a G20 tech sprint, coming up with transaction monitoring solutions for crypto and its transition into fiat. For me, what, what I find absolutely fascinating is trying to understand the link between these kind of grand scale macro initiatives um, and pronouncements that are made by heads of state, such as Le Président Macron, who is just gorgeous. Um, <laughs> and kind of what does that actually mean on a day-to-day -day micro operational basis for a bank or a financial institution or a real estate agency. And that is why sometimes on my LinkedIn feed, you might see a photo of me accosting a head of state and asking for photos. <laughs> <laughs> my favorite oh. which has been Angela Merkel, I have to say. <laughs> and she does the power suit so well. Oh, she really does. And I mean, she's just a formidable female. I would call her an icon, actually. Well, on that note, Denise, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And if you'd like to do like Denise and take part in one of our future podcasts, or even if you've got some ideas or suggestions for future topics, feel free to reach out to us on our website, captivatedaudience.eu, where you can also drop either Marie or myself a note directly on LinkedIn. Until the next time, have a great day and stay safe.